Book three, chapter six of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Book three, chapter six. Quel mortal ne sait pas dans le sein des orages où reposer sa tête à l'abri des naufrages? Et moi, jouer des flots, seul avec mes douleurs, aucun navire ami ne vient frapper ma vue, aucun sur cette mer où ma barque est perdue ne porte mes couleurs. Three months before the Sunday on which Elizabeth went to the little Episcopal church among the hills, Malcolm Ford had come home, a very shadow of his former self, to renew the strength that he had spent in the fatiguing service of his mission. Not disheartened or disgusted with his work did he journey homeward, only intent upon returning to that beloved labour in a little while, with a frame made vigorous by the cool breezes of his native land, and mental powers that should have gained new force from a brief season of rest. Infinitely had God blessed his endeavours in that distant world, and infinite were his hopes of future achievement. He had not mistaken his mission upon this earth, the work prospered under his hand, he was of that stamp of men who are by nature formed to be leaders of their fellow-men, created to convince, to subjugate, to rule the weaker clay which makes the mass of humanity. He came home to Scotland in no manner depressed, though he felt that his health was shaken, that he had laboured just a little longer than prudential considerations would have warranted. Not cast down, although he fancied sometimes as the good ship sailed homeward, that he should never again cross those blue waters, never finish the work so well begun. "'If not I, some other one,' he said to himself in tranquil resignation. "'I cannot believe that labourers will be wanted for so fair a vineyard. Let me be content if I have been suffered to see the beginning of that glorious end which I know must come in God's good time.' before that wonderful day when the dead shall arise from their graves and alice fraser and i shall see each other again he thought of his first love whose bridal robe had been her winding-sheet whose undefiled image rose before him pure and stainless as an angel's and then with unspeakable bitterness he thought of that other love so much more fatally beloved who had stained her soul with the deep shame of a loveless marriage who had bartered purity and truth and honour, her life's liberty, her soul's independence, for the pomps and vanities of this world. He went back to Lenorgi. Those he had best loved were sleeping their quiet sleep in the old churchyard among the hills, but there were old friends still left to give him cordial welcome, and he spent the drowsy summer-time pleasantly enough in the restful calm of his native place. His small estate was let to strangers, even the house in which he was born, but he found a comfortable lodging in one of the farmhouses on his own land. He had just sufficient society to make life agreeable, and ample leisure for making himself acquainted with the better part of that mass of literature which had been produced during his absence, literature whereof very little had reached him on the other side of the Pacific. In this manner he spent a couple of months, then, finding his health in some manner restored, started on a walking tour from Loch Rannoch to Loch Lomond, resting wherever the fancy seized him, sometimes spending half a week at some quiet out-of-the-way inn, where the herd of summer tourists came not, fishing a little, 
reading and thinking a great deal, with hope that grew stronger as his physical strength revived, taking the business of pedestrianism altogether quietly, and varying his work according to the humour of the hour. Thus, after the best part of a month spent upon ground which the British tourist scours in a couple of days, he came to Dunallen, where he had an old high school and college comrade of days gone by, in the person of the Reverend Peter Mackenzie, whose duty he had promised to take upon his own hands for a couple of months, while Mr. Mackenzie and his family enjoyed a holiday in Belgium. For the first week of Mr. Ford's residence, the Reverend Peter was to remain at Dunallen, in order to introduce his friend to his new duties, and make him feel at home in the snug little Gothic manse on the hillside, which was a great deal too small for the Mackenzie olive branches, but was so arranged with infinite management on the part of Mrs. Mackenzie as to contain a permanent spare bedroom. The juvenile Mackenzies inhabited certain dovecot-like chambers in the gables, which might have been rather large for a pigeon, but were a good deal too small for a child, except upon the principle that nature will adapt itself to anything in the way of surroundings. The little Mackenzies might have carried their bedrooms on their back like snails without being very heavily burdened, but they thrived and flourished notwithstanding, and whooped and gambled like young scions of the MacGregor family in that clear mountain air. In this hospitable abode, where he was almost killed as Juliet proposed to slay Romeo with much cherishing, Mr. Ford intended to repose himself for seven or eight weeks, counting the light duties of this small parish as the next thing to idleness, before returning to his labours at the other end of the world. He hoped to start in November, and thus escape the severities of a British winter which he felt himself ill-prepared to face. It did indeed seem to Elizabeth, as she drove homeward at a reckless pace that Sunday afternoon, as if life and the world were new again, as if a new force had set the warm blood racing through her veins, as if the very air she breathed had a magical power, and the landscape she looked upon was glorious in the light of a new sun. It was only a little burst of afternoon sunlight, a sudden break in the dull grey sky that beautified the hills, but to her it seemed no common radiance in the skies, no common loveliness in the landscape. I would be content to live on just like this for ever, she thought, if I could hear him preach every Sunday. Lord Paulyn was enjoying the tardy sunshine before the Gothic porch of Slognadiac as his wife drove her ponies up to the chief door of the chateau. He was smoking a meditative cigar, but not in solitude. His friend Mr. Lampton, a turf magnate, who had exchanged speculation in Manchester soft goods, for the more hazardous operations of the turf, was lounging on an adjacent rustic bench, and his toady-in-chief, Mr. Ferdinand Spink, a gentleman who combined a taste for literature with a genius for billiards, supported himself against an angle of the porch in a state of supreme exhaustion, while seated in the Glastonbury chair within the shelter of the porch appeared the graceful figure of Hilda Disney. It was altogether a pretty domestic picture, the Viscount planted on the threshold of his mansion, his cousin close at hand, his friend and flatterer on either side, like the supporters in the family arms. And how little I am wanted here, thought Elizabeth, with the old feeling of dislike and suspicion about Hilda. Been to church? asked Lord Paulyn coolly. Yes. 
been doing goody-goody for the lot of us. I'm glad you stick to that sort of thing. It's ballast for the rest of the family. I thought you were going to afternoon church, said Elizabeth, turning to Hilda, with a faint suspicion in her look. Well, she changed her mind and stayed at home to talk something over with me, answered the Viscount. She's worth half a dozen stewards. I go to Hilda when I want a wrinkle about the management of my estate. She didn't live the best part of her life with such a jolly old screw as my mother for nothing, I can tell you. Hilda made no acknowledgment of this dubious compliment. Did you like the church at Dunallen? she asked. Well, it's much better than that cast-iron oven. Elizabeth's face flamed crimson for a moment as she spoke, the old transient flush like the reflection of evening sunlight. Miss Disney marked the vivid colour and wondered what there could be in a strange church to call for blushes. You had a good sermon, I hope, as a reward for your six-mile drive. Yes, answered Elizabeth curtly. She went into the house, passing her husband without so much as a look. He had Hilda, Hilda's counsel. Hilda, trained in that sordid school at Ashcombe. Hilda, whose genius was to suggest the saving of money. Her bosom swelled with anger and contempt. Anger against both, contempt for both. Why did he not marry his cousin and leave me to my lonely life? Leave me to be true to the memory of Malcolm Ford? She went up to her own room, the room with the stone balcony looking over the water, the soft blue-grey wavelets which flowed beneath the hills that hid Dunallen. How strange! How sweet, how sad, to know that he was so near her, he from whom she was parted for ever. Oh, if I had been constant to him, if I had been content to live my blank, miserable life in that wretched little house at Hawley, to be dragooned by Gertrude, to creep on my dull way like a snail that's never been outside the walls of some dismal old kitchen garden. If I had spent all those years in thinking about him and grieving for the loss of his love, would heaven have rewarded my patience and brought him back to me at last? Could I, by only a little self-denial, only a few years' patience, have been so blessed at last? No, I will not believe it. To think that would drive me mad. She sat in the balcony, looking down at the water dreamily, with folded arms resting on the broad stone balustrade, sat living old days over again in a mournful reverie that was not altogether bitter, nay, rather perilously sweet, for it brought back the past and the feelings that belonged to the past with a strange reality. Memory opened the gates of a paradise like that Swedenborgian heaven in which all fairest earthly things have their shadow types and from the things that had been her thoughts wandered to the things that might have been, the life she might have lived had she been true to Malcolm Ford. He would have made me a good woman, she thought, and what have I been without him? Her newly awakened conscience reviewed her past life, a career of frivolity and selfishness unleavened by one charitable thought or noble act. She had lived for herself and to please herself, and heaven, as if in anger, had snatched from her the chosen delight of her selfish soul, the child whose influence might have redeemed her useless life, drawn her world-stained soul heavenward. 
dark was the picture of her life to look back upon, darker still her vision of the future. Growing estrangement between her husband and herself, her power lessening daily as her beauty decayed, sinister influences at work to divide them, and on her own part an apathy and disgust which made her shrink from any attempt to retain her hold upon his affection. The booming of the great gong in the hall below reminded her of the common business of life, but hardly awakened her from her daydream. She hurried to her dressing-room, and suffered herself to be arrayed for the evening, and went down to the drawing-room, where the Viscount and his friends were dispersed upon the Ottomans, in all manner of attitudes expressive of extreme prostration, feebly pretending to read newspapers or look at the pictures in magazines, while they sustained muttered discussions about the odds against this horse, or the chances in favour of that. They made a little pretence of picking themselves up and drawing themselves together at the entrance of Lady Paulyn. Mr. Spink, the literary gentleman, said something funny in the Saturday Review and Water style about Scotch Sabbaths, but not receiving the faintest encouragement, returned to the study of Bell's life in a state of collapse. Oh, I don't know what's the matter with her ladyship this evening, he said afterwards in a burst of confidence, but she looks as if she was walking in her sleep. Never was sleepwalker less conscious of her surroundings than Elizabeth that night. She performed the duties of her position mechanically, made very fair answers to the inanities which were addressed to her, smiled a faint cold smile now and then, turned the leaves of the book she pretended to read after dinner, caressed the privileged hound who stretched his long limbs beside her chair and laid his head among the silken folds of her dress, her favourite companion at times, and fondly devoted to her always. If the strangeness of her manner were evident to the careless eyes of Mr. Spink, a gentleman who considered the universe a clever contrivance designed as a setting for that jewel Spink, it was much more obvious to the eyes of Hilda Disney, eyes that were sharpened by a jealousy which had never slept since the day when Reginald Paulyn first betrayed his admiration for the vicar's daughter. What could have happened within the last few hours to bring about so marked a change? That pale set face, those dreary awe-stricken eyes, as of one who had held converse with the very dead, what could these denote? It was not an edifying Sunday evening by any means. The Scottish underlings of the household shivered as the click of the billiard balls made itself heard in the servants' hall an hour or two after dinner. But how could the Viscount and his friends have lived through the day without billiards? Elizabeth looked up from her book after a long reverie, to find herself alone with Hilda in the great empty drawing-room. Only they two, sitting ever so far apart, like shipwrecked mariners who had been cast ashore on some desert island, and who were not on speaking terms. "'I hope there's nothing the matter, Lady Paulyn,' said Hilda. You are looking so unlike yourself to-night. Elizabeth stared at her for a moment doubtfully, with that almost vacant look which had startled Mr. Spink. Oh, there's nothing the matter. Uh, only I am I'm tired of this place. Already? Why, we've been here only a few weeks, and Reginald likes the life so much. That does not oblige me to live here 
the place would kill me i can't endure the solitude it makes me think too much i should go mad if i stayed here this from her who a few hours ago had thanked god for her scottish home had deemed it joy and peace unspeakable to breathe the air that was breathed by malcolm ford to live from the beginning to the very end of every week cradled in the hope of seeing him for a little while on sunday yes she had thought all this but conscience had awakened with much thinking and she began to feel that even in this delight which involved no hope of meeting him face to face of being forgiven of hearing him speak her name with something of the old tenderness even in this there was sin danger in the most common sense of the world there could be none for was not malcolm ford as a rock against whose calm breast the waves of passion beat in vain but she knew there was peril to her soul in this vicinity she knew it by the passionate yearning that filled her heart as she sat by this joyless hearth and thought of the life that might have been had she held by her treasure when it was hers to hold if she had not at least for a little while loved earthly pomps and vanities better than malcolm ford i can quite imagine that the exertion of thinking must be a new sensation after your life in park lane said miss disney with her icy sneer but wouldn't it be as well to encourage the habit the world will hardly be big enough for you if you always run away from thought and as you grow older you would find the exercise useful as a way of getting rid of winter evenings you remember what talleyrand said to the young man who couldn't play whist what a melancholy old age you are preparing for yourself elizabeth did not trouble herself to dispute the justice of these observations she started up from her seat went over to one of the windows and flung it open with a sharp decisive action that indicated a mind overwrought innumerable stars were shining in the deep dark sky stars that shone upon him too she thought as she looked out upon them with that old old thought which has thrilled the soul of every man and woman who ever lived at least once in a lifetime did he recognise me to-day as i drove past him does he know that i am near does he think of me and pity me and regret the foolishness that parted us oh no to regret would be sin and he never sins lord paulyn came into the room while his wife was standing at the open window listening idly to the slow ripple of the waves looking idly at the glory of the stars lost in thought quite unconscious of anything that happened in the room behind her he came in alone languidly yawning miss disney beckoned him over to her with a somewhat mysterious air oh what's the matter hilda how confoundedly solemn you look i'm afraid lady paulyn is not well oh bosh she was well enough at dinner she's been giving herself airs i suppose let her alone as i do and she'll come round fast enough oh no no it's not that but i really think there is something strange about her did you not notice something in the expression of her face at dinner oh, i've left off watching her looks i know she's a remarkably handsome woman and she knows it and she's given herself no end of airs on the strength of her good looks but there are limits to a man's patience 
and my stock of that commodity is very nearly exhausted do you remember what you told me about her illness after the death of your son the viscount started frowned and looked at his cousin with suppressed anger do you remember telling me that there was a time when the doctors feared that her mind would never recover from that shock i told you what the doctors said but the doctors are humbugs they had a good case and wanted to make the most of it i never thought anything of the kind myself but why the why do you bring this up to-night don't be angry i'm only anxious for your sake as well as hers there is something very strange in her manner to-night of course it may mean nothing only it is my duty to warn you oh hang duty cried lord paulyn impatiently i never knew duty urge any one to do anything unpleasant the moment any one mentions duty i know that i am in for it he turned upon his heel paced the room two or three times in an angry mood and then went out to the balcony where his wife was standing what are you doing out here star-gazing he asked the reply came in a softer tone than he was accustomed to hear from elizabeth's lips i have been thinking a great deal this evening reginald and i am going to ask you a favour oh please don't call me capricious or be angry with me for asking it and if you can possibly grant it pray do what the deuce do you want he asked ungraciously more money i suppose you didn't make a clean breast of it the other day when you gave me your bills though they were heavy enough in conscience name it isn't anything about money i want you to take me away from this place i know it is very beautiful i thought at first i should never be tired of the mountains and the locks and the sea that lies beyond but the solitude is killing me oh do let us go away reginald anywhere i should be happier anywhere than here ah i thought as much cried lord paulyn with a hard laugh i thought there was some plot hatching between you and hilda you'd both like to spread your wings i dare say you'd like to go to paris or baden-baden or hamburg or brighton some nice crowded place where you could spend money like water oh, no my dear elizabeth when i brought you here i brought you here to stay i know slograndiac isn't lively but it's healthy as the doctors all acknowledge and for the time being it suits me very well i came here to diminish my expenses and i mean to stick here till i've filled the hole you dug in my bank balance by your extravagance last season what cried elizabeth with ineffable disdain you're here for the sake of hoarding your money you bring me to this out-of-the-way place in order that i may cost you less why don't you send me away altogether you could save more money that way i could live on a hundred a year then i'm sorry you've never tried the experiment since you've been my wife oh, give me back my liberty let me go and live somewhere abroad under a feigned name alone my own mistress free to think my own thoughts away from this wretched artificial life which at its best seems to me like acting a part in a stage play let me do that 
and i'll not ask you for a farthing i'll live on the pittance that belongs to me a very safe offer even if you meant it which you don't replied lord paulyn coolly no i married you because i was fool enough to be fond of you and i'm fool enough to be fond of you still but there comes an end to the period in which a man rather enjoys being twisted round his wife's little finger i've been pliable enough i've let you have your full swing i half suspected when you refused to have anything settled upon you that you meant to spend my money all the more freely that you didn't want to be limited to a few hundreds but meant to make ducks and drakes of thousands i think i've borne with your extravagance pretty well from this time forward however i mean to pull up and nurse my income as my mother nursed the ashcombe estates for me the three years of my married life have cost me about six times as much as the same amount of time in my bachelor life and yet i didn't stint myself of any reasonable indulgence i can assure you what if i had some special reason for asking you to take me away from this place pleaded elizabeth without noticing her lord's harangue a woman always has a special reason for wanting her own way answered lord paulyn with a sneering laugh well so be it she said raising her drooping head and looking at him with flashing eyes i will stay here then but remember always that i begged you to take me away and that you refused me that favour i will stay here since you insist upon it and be happy in my own way Pooh, be happy in any way you please so long as you don't worry me with this kind of thing oh, come now lizzie be reasonable you know let us retrench this year and i'll give you a month or two in park lane in the spring of course i'm proud of you and all that sort of thing and i like to show you off only you've contrived to make it so confoundedly expensive and what other happiness do you suppose i expected when i married you except the pleasure of spending money she retorted in her coldest hardest tone upon my soul you're too bad he cried angrily you're not the first woman that's married for money by a long way but i should think you're about the first that could look a man in the face and tell him as much without blushing and with this reproach he left her to go back to his friends and smoke a moody cigar in their congenial society. End of Book 3, Chapter 6